Hello everyone, and welcome to the 2022 Wealth Tech Show Roundup. I'm Georgia Morrell, and as many of you know, I work with Ian on the Wealth Tech newsletter. We thought it'd be fun to pick some of our favorite bits of the podcast from the last year and compile them into a highlight show. First up, we have an extract from our episode with Matt Hancock, which turned out to be one of our more controversial episodes. In this clip, Ian and Matt discuss whether the UK could be the next fintech hub and whether investing in crypto should be restricted in this country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. I'm Ian Horn, and today I'm joined by Matt Hancock, MP for West Suffolk and former Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Matt recently made a statement in Parliament uh, in which he said, the UK could become a home for new innovations like fintech and crypto. Now, as a former Minister of State for Digital, Chief of Staff to the Shadow Chancellor and Economist at the Bank of England, I figured we should invite him to join the show to discuss both. So, Matt, thank you for joining me and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. It's great to be with you. No, great to have you here. And, and to get us started, I want to know what sort of reception you've received in Parliament. You know, you're talking about crypto and fintech, new, exciting areas, not without their drawbacks, of course. Um, are people receptive to the message? And, and you know, what, in your opinion, are, are the opportunities that we need to pursue? Well, look, I think it's really important that we get this positive message out because I've been struck in Parliament that the debate about fintech, which was very vibrant, you know, five, ten years ago, and very positive, it's much more cautious now, much more about, well, you know, there are bad actors who can use these technologies. Um, but the honest truth is that innovation is the way that we build the future of people's prosperity. And that's that's the big picture, sort of flying at 40,000 feet. So I was listening to this debate in, in Parliament and thinking, hold on, we've got to be more positive. We've got to be more energetic. You know, these innovations are going to happen. So let's have them happen here. You know, it's that sort of attitude, I think, which is the right one for the UK to take. It's done as well in the past. If you think of the euro bond market in the 80s, uh, if you think of the development of uh, of open banking, if you think of the um, the developments in fintech in the in the sort of 2010s, you know, these improvements have best been, you know, done with, with a strong ecosystem. And let's have that strong ecosystem here in London. The other thing that really struck me is that actually the ecosystem in fintech is really doing well. You know, the amount of finance coming in is strong. Um, and with Brexit, there's an opportunity to make sure that the regulatory regime is 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 good and liberal. Um, but that wasn't being reflected in Parliament. So having had a long-standing interest in this area before I became health secretary, um, I I thought, well, I've got to you know, somebody's got to get out there and speak up for these innovations that are happening and make sure that, yes, by all means, there's some areas that need um, that need a regulatory regime, but it's got to be a liberal, positive, progressive one. And, and what does that mean, especially in a post-Brexit you know, economy where we have greater freedom, you know, ostensibly to, to do things? Yeah. So first of all, the EU is clearly moving in this space and uh, proposing a regulatory regime that I think is relatively restricted. Let me give you a couple of examples. You know, the first is that in buying risk assets, so crypto that isn't anchored, for instance, you know, my view is that our approach should be caveat emptor, it, you know, a very long-standing principle. We should allow people to buy and trade this stuff. Um, th that is a liberal regime. Um, yes, I think there do need to be some uh, standards around, for instance, advertising, um, and there need to be standards around uh, tackling money laundering. But the there's an attitude in some parts of the world uh, and some parts of 
um, some people, some in the UK, who say, well, we should only allow sophisticated investors near this stuff because you can lose money. Well, you can lose money buying equities, right? So let's treat this asset class, this effectively new asset class, um, in a in a way that is open to investment and allows people to make choices for themselves. That's one example of how we need to think about things. Because ultimately, if you take crypto as an example, it is a new type of asset class. And deciding which you know which existing asset class it's closest to, um, and making sure that the regime fits that is incredibly important. Yeah, I think I, I take your point on people wanting to get involved. But I think about 92% of crypto investors are from households with less than £100,000 of annual income. So we're not talking about the ultra-rich. I mean, what, what do you think we should do to encourage people to invest in crypto without the drawbacks? Because you're talking about the opportunity for you know outsized returns, attractive returns, but there's also the opportunity for huge losses. Yeah. People that probably can't afford to sustain. Well, it's that last bit that I, I, I don't like, right? Because it's an assumption, a sort of, the, and this is preve- prevalent in some areas of the debate, there's an assumption, a sort of patronizing assumption, that people you know, don't have that money to lose. Now, I totally agree with you that you shouldn't put in more money than you, you can afford to lose into a high-risk asset, in the same way that you shouldn't gamble money that you can't afford to lose. Um, but you absolutely, I think, should be able to access uh, markets in interesting investments and the idea that you know financial regulators and the state should effectively say to people for instance with under a hundred thousand pounds annual income uh, i'm terribly sorry we know better than you what you can invest your money in i think it's completely wrong are you against the idea of there being one metaverse should there be several metaverses there should be infinite opportunities for development of the metaverse they should be interoperable that's the point like yeah. the like the original internet the idea of meta running the metaverse makes me shudder <laughs> so there needs to be some kind of shared ecosystem though so things kind of move from one platform to the next yeah i you know i want i want i want meta to be the aol of web 3.0 you know i want i want them to be you know they if they try and there are signs that they won't try this and i hope they don't but if they try to become you know the metaverse and synonymous with the metaverse, like AOL tried to make the internet on its platform, and it crumbled in its attempt to do that because the 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 liberating democracy of of the of the internet was so much more powerful than one company's attempt to control what happened within it. I hope that's what happens in Web three point zero. By come and play and come and build amazing stuff, Meta, but just don't try to define the whole thing. We should, let's do that through open standards. Up next, we have a clip from Ian's conversation with Yela Schamberg, who talks us through the story of how InvestCloud started, the uphill battles she faced getting people to care about cloud, and how she unsuccessfully tried to buy a very famous domain name. Finally, they talk about what Yela describes as an Amazon-style financial supermarket, and in the hope that this will change how asset managers market their products to wealth managers. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to the co-founder of a fintech unicorn, that interviewee is Yale Schamberg, Chief Product Officer of InvestCloud, which develops digital financial solutions pre-integrated into the cloud. So Yale, thank you for joining us. Great to have you on the Wealth Tech Show. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks, Ian. So I, I need to know more about your business and it, what you're doing in it is fascinating. So my understanding is InvestCloud supports over, over $6 trillion of assets on your platform. 
and and you're the co-founder of this. Yayla, can you can you tell me the <laughs> this is gonna be difficult because I'm gonna ask you to do it in about two minutes, maybe. Could you tell me a, you know, the succinct version of the InvestCloud story? Sure. Um, so InvestCloud started in 2010 in a garage here in California. Uh, we were, I think we were a posse of about six looking to start a fintech company. At the time, fintech wasn't a thing, so it was financial technology, right? We all came from the financial services industry, and we believed that really any investor could have access to a first-class like digital platform in the cloud with InvestCloud. So we were really keen on making a pretty dynamic shift in the industry for people. And our vision was set on that. It's, it's by the way, the vision is still the same today, 12 years on. And so what we wanted to do is, is get together, have a purely cloud-based solution, which meant that any investor of any size, of any type, whether it's a hedge fund, whether it's a wealth management company, whether it's an asset manager, would really have access to this industrial strength, internationally designed cloud-based platform. And so that was that was kind of what we set out to do. Uh, like I said, it was in 2010 we started. We spent about a year and a half, two years building the platform and working on that, building what we call the digital warehouse, where everything, all the data really comes together, and then building something that I think is way wicked and cool in the industry, which is iProgram. And that is a pure code generation tool that business analysts and designers like myself can use to create all of the user journeys and all of the different experiences for our clients, like soup to nuts, beginning to end. Uh, and so with those two things in hand, kind of foundationally and a love of design and a pursuit of design, we went out to the market and started started to sell really and, and got our first clients in 2012. And as you said, massive growth now, um, $6.3 trillion US dollars on the, on the, on the platform. Uh, we are global with deployments for clients live in over 40 countries. So very internationally focused. Uh, we have over 20 million accounts running through the platform every day, so I could I could brag all day long. But I'm I'm <laughs> super jazzed about what we built, and uh, and and here we are today, 2022, like you said, and and pretty big and ambitious company, and um, just continuing to move forward into new horizons that we see and opportunities in the space. I want to talk about your ability to spot the opportunity provided by cloud as long ago as just 12 years ago. That, that's that's a real foresight. Uh, how, how did you spot the opportunity? Yeah, that's a that's a good point that you picked up on there. So, funnily enough, when we started, um, John Wise, our our CEO and co-founder, a couple of his mates from uh, you know Wall Street and 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 the street and whatnot were saying, "Listen, it's a terrible name. Like, don't do the cloud. No one's ever going to put anything in your cloud. Financial services are not going to go there. They're not going to trust it." Um, but we saw pretty clearly the writing on the wall. I mean, that's where in our consumer lives, we were starting to go. Not only that, with our heritage, some of the, our founders had a heritage in technology and kind of da data warehousing before. The problem that they saw repeat itself over and over was because it was always an enterprise local installation, it limited the amount of buyers that you could have. And it limited the amount of updates you could have and the way that those things had to be, the technology had to be supported. What's more is people got on different versions of, of the actual code. So suddenly you had disparate code bases for different clients. So it really is, it's a problem by not being in the cloud that limits your scale and your sustainability over time. And so we were adamant that cloud is the way to go and it was really only a matter of time. And of course there was a lot of naysayers along the way that were, you know, terrified to, to use cloud, but there they were using a, a Google account or, you know, Gmail. So it's, so I think it just took a little time for some people. Become mainstream now, you know people are begging us to put things into 
various data centers all over the world, you know, this and that and the other, and we're, you know, they're working on hosting everything. So it's, it's been, it's been a fun adoption to watch, but certainly right. And oh, and my last thing on cloud is we tried to buy the domain iCloud when oh, we started. Okay. We were like, oh, we're going to invest cloud. Let's buy invest cloud and let's buy iCloud. It'll be great. <laughs> Funnily enough, it was, it was taken by an anonymous owner who refused to sell it to us. You know, we thought we were being very generous as a startup in a garage offering $5,000. When they didn't reply, we offered $10,000 to which they didn't reply. And we were just, you know, we were livid. How dare they? Um, and of course, I think two years later, it was yeah. something that we all use today. And to talk to about something else you, you've got, which is Invest Cloud X, which I, I read you've just, well, I say you, your, your website describes it as a, an Amazon style financial supermarket. And the idea is, is to revolutionize how asset managers market their financial products to wealth managers. Now that, that sounds interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. could you, could you talk us through that one, please? Sure. Um, we lovingly refer to it as either Vest Cloud 10 or Vest Cloud X. It depends if you want to read it as a Roman numeral or a letter. Uh, have I just created, uh, committed a card or sin there by calling it not, X? Not at all. Not at all. But when I refer to it as Vest Cloud 10, now you'll know why. Um, we really we wanted it to be, we wanted it to feel like a really exciting starting point for everything we have on the platform today, plus the world of the financial supermarket. So think about um, where we are today on our platform, we have over 300 apps, you know, client portal, mobility, a digital advice robo experience for advisors and wealth managers, advisor portals. Um, what do we have? Um, digital advice proposaling, right? Digital advice planning. So we have like all of these tools already, accounting and performance, all that stuff today. And then that really supports a whole host of wealth advisors, over 400 different wealth advisor shops today and hundreds and thousands of, of different advisors. And then what you have now is all these asset managers that need access to the wealth management space because that's where their products actually grow and move on and live. And so you have all this important thought leadership, all these clever analysts, right? All these people doing research and crafting beautiful financial products that in truth, what we've seen, the pattern we've seen is that technology is an inhibitor from asset managers, the product, the right product in the asset manager getting into the right portfolio at a wealth manager. And what I mean by that is oftentimes people are limited to the financial products that are on the technology platform. So depending on what account type you're opening, what institution, what the home office has allowed, like what you have to do for your account, depending on what technology you're using, then tells you which product you're allowed to use and match with your client, which is, you know, and, and if, if we've learned anything, I think in the world of where we're going holistically is like, it's an open world right? Open architecture world and finance needs to follow and which, which we are big proponents of. So imagine a place where you can bring a marketplace where you can bring all these asset managers onto one platform, all these wealth managers onto one platform and really allow them the idea of a simple search, looking through things, seeing tagged information, looking at videos, podcasts, interviews, things that are actually t helping to tell the story about these financial products, not just a fact sheet that's emailed or sit in in the lobby of an asset manager that doesn't really see the light of day. Advisors are very busy. They don't necessarily have time to, to look and do massive amounts of research. How do you give them the right sound bites, media and information to help them match with the right type of clients, portfolios and, and financial objectives that their, their clients have. So that's really what we're calling the financial supermarket and a Cloud 10 encapsulates all of that, all of that client advisor 
and the the distributor experience where they can do an easy proposal, they can make a financial plan, and then they can shop for a product. They can find the right product, they can match it, and then simple execution. And that gives asset managers access to the wealth managers and over 20 million accounts on our platform. And it gives wealth managers access to over 150 asset managers already today on our platform. So it really is what we believe is going to be something pretty um, pretty revolutionary in the industry to have a single platform, as you said, technology that plays well with others yeah. and you can kind of plug into, but also brings its own ecosystem to play as a really strong starting point for everyone. The next clip is taken from Ian's discussion with Myron Jobson. They speak about the cost of living crisis and how technology can help, the dangers of financial influences on social media, and why Myron thinks crypto investing will slow down. The last few weeks we've been discussing crypto assets. This week we're taking a very different direction and we're going to discuss the cost of living crisis. With that in mind, let me introduce today's guest. I'm joined by Myron Jobson, Senior Personal Finance Analyst at Interactive Investor. Myron, welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. Hello, Ian, and thank you very much for inviting me on. Great to have you on. So, Myron, I think a few people will be aware of your work. You're a columnist for the I newspaper. Yeah. Uh, you featured on Talk TV and GB News as well. Um, so, look, tell us a little about yourself and how you've landed in the exciting world of personal finance. Well, yeah, well, my job really as a senior personal finance analyst for Interactive Investor is I talk about money. That's what I talk about. <laughs> I talk about personal finance. Yeah. Finances range from savings, investment mortgages, you know, so you know, I might come things like house price indices, um, obviously cost of living crisis. How could we ever forget that? You know, it's just a, a perpetual crisis, isn't it, for us at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, wealth in buy now, pay later, yeah, borrowing, credit, just a range of different topics covering personal finances. And yeah, I've been doing this for, gosh, almost three years now. So before that, I was a financial journalist. Yes. Um, I used to work for... Who would do that? I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> great, great role. Um, I used to work for This Is Money. I also worked for FT Advisor, which is one of uh, Financial Times trade publications. So yeah, I've been in the industry for, gosh, almost 10 years now, which is... Uh, wow, where's my life going? <laughs> in yeah. a good way. It, a good yeah, way. I know what you mean. It's been eight years for me. So I know, <laughs> I know the feeling, as we were talking about, you can't, you know, it's so important that we have that financial education overlay before we start using technology to try and fix the problem. I'm going to start with being negative because, of course, I am a journalist. <laughs> uh, look, we, social media and financial influencers. Uh, yes. Go on. Do you, I, I, think, uh, I don't think I need to finish that question. No, I mean. Talk to me. Everyone thinks they're an expert, right? Everyone thinks they're experts. But they're not. They're not experts. <laughs> I tell you, no, they're not. The amount of this ill, bad guidance, you know, I'm trying to temper my words but it's it's quite it can be quite frustrating because i have friends who like oh Marion, have you seen this you know it's, especially when it comes to riskier investments which i'm sure we'll talk about um they're like oh yeah i should do this i should do that i'm like no 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 you have to remember that you can't believe everything you see on social media and you know going that going to investments for example like cryptocurrency I'll, yeah I'll, I'll say it, you know um very risky we all know it's very risky the fca have um, put out many statements trying to remind consumers that it's a risky investment and if you're going to invest make sure it's just a really 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 tiny fraction of um, your portfolio but some of the things you see on social media it, it makes it seem like it's it's a no-brain that you should do it you know you should not just crypto but some other risky investments you know um forex trading all that kind of stuff they, you know people young people are looking at this and think this is a way of making money and i think sometimes it feeds into this um this want to to build up wealth very quickly um and a lot of us in the industry know that it's you know that the yeah. parable of the tortoise and the hare isn't it slow and steady repeat wins the race and that, that 
the same principle applies to your investments, you know, and yeah, it's, you know, where do I stop really? Honestly, <laughs> it's, it's, it's dangerous and, um, yeah, more needs to be done to, to tackle the bad guidance out there. And hopefully the online safety bill, um, will, will, you know, help, help tackle that. Let's, uh, talk about risky investments. Uh, the democratization of investing was on the agenda last year, and I'm not trying to present that as a bad thing. I generally think it's great that more people are able to invest, but a lot of it was kicked off by cryptocurrencies you've alluded to already and then the meme stocks uh, you could even have nfts on the cryptocurrency side of things um you know insofar as this is this is galvanized regular folk to to make investments with money they might otherwise have spent in a different way do, do you think that trend is here to stay or do you think that was a bit of lockdown boredom oh, that's quite interesting um i do think that trend is here to say but the cost, cost of living crisis is stymieing that it is it, 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 it prevent that from moving on yeah quite considerable because people just don't have enough money to to make such investments i mean with with the pandemic i think a lot of people with all of a sudden having a lot of time on their hands you know can't really do much as in under the lockdown restriction just felt that right now is a right good time to start investing i've heard about this thing investing maybe i should start doing it and you know cryptocurrency um the advertising of it captured a lot of people's minds you know we at interactive investor did a survey and found that 45 percent of um adults aged between 18 and 29 made their first ever investment in anything in cryptocurrency and the only thing and what's worrying is that a lot of uh, a large number of people did so by using money from debt from loans from student loans credit cards you know other um avenues of debt which we thought was quite worrying really mm-hmm. um and so, yeah, it's, you know, we can't get away from the fact that people have engaged in investing in cryptocurrency. And of course, the GameStop, the meme, um, stock saga um, during the pandemic feeds into that. But as I say, with the cost of living crisis, it has slowed down. And I think that a lot of people have, you know, those people who did make their first ever investment in such um, investments have experienced a baptism of fire now oh, with the... Sure. Uh, so with crypto markets just tanking, um, GameStop nowhere near as high as it was, you know, a couple of years ago during the Meme saga and all that. Um, I mean, stock saga rather. So it's about to time, and, and the the only danger with that is it might prevent people, well, it might put people off from investing for a lifetime, and that will be very very worrying. Next up, we have an extract from Ian's chat with British author and journalist Jamie Bartlett. Jamie's most well known for his BBC podcast series Missing Crypto Queen. In this clip, Jamie explains the story of the missing crypto queen and talks about how investigating it has impacted his own life and safety. Let's talk about the OneCoin story because that really is something else. As you, as you mm. allude to at the end, this has become a, a major story. Uh, and I'm sure you, you talked about it a hell of a lot and mm. a lot of people listening in will know the story, but could you quickly outline it for us? I'll, I'll I know, I know it's a, a, big, a big thing, but the, the, the key points. Yeah, it's a big complicated story with so many sort of interesting little subplots. But the basic version is this. It's 2014. The price of Bitcoin is $400 or whatever. Dr. Ruja Ignatova, a German-Bulgarian businesswoman with a PhD in law and a master's degree from Oxford, five years experience at a consulting firm, turns up and basically says to the world, Bitcoin is for geeks. It's for nerds. It's going to change the world because money is going digital. We're going to all be using cryptocurrencies one day. But Bitcoin isn't right. It's it's techy. It's complicated. 
Transactions are totally irreversible, so it's never going to work for ordinary people who lose their passwords and get hacked. Um, and it's used by criminals and gangsters and all the rest of it. It's this anarchic thing. We need to build a new, like, Bitcoin 2.0, the, 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 the version that's going to work for the masses. And she called it OneCoin. And she started selling OneCoin, telling people it was going to be the future of money. It was early days, so get in now and it'll change your life. You'll get very rich, but you're also being part of a global financial revolution. But here's the kicker. It was not sold like Bitcoin is on a open exchange where you can buy and sell it and the price is determined by supply and demand. It was sold through multi-level marketing, which is, if you know Avon, Tupperware, mm-hmm. Herbalife, Amway, you buy products, you recruit people who then sell those products to their friends and family who in turn sell it to their friends and family and you create this sort of large network of sellers and the sort of commissions go up the pyramid. She sold one coin through multi-level marketing. People would spend 5,000 euros buying one coin, then they would recruit their friends and family to buy 5,000 euros worth of one coin and they'd get a commission from that who in turn would recruit their friends and family. So this thing grows like at a speed that makes Bitcoin look like a snail. It Within 18 months, a million people had, had invested 4 billion euros into what they thought was the next Bitcoin. And they log on to their account and the OneCoin um, HQ in Sofia, Bulgaria, see they've got all these OneCoin in their accounts. They see the price of it. They, they're excited to see the price going up. They're gonna, they can't cash it out and turn it into real money just yet, but Ruja says next month, next month, next year, it's gonna be all available to trade on a proper site like Kraken or Poloniex or one of those big ones. Yeah. And, then in, and then in October 2017, she boards a flight from, a Ryanair flight from Sofia, Bulgaria to Athens, Greece, just with a passport and a handbag and a security guard and is never seen of or heard of again. And she's disappeared with at least $500 million of people's money, probably much more, assets all over the world. And the whole thing is basically a sophisticated pyramid scheme. There was no real technology behind it. The price of the coins that people thought they owned was made up by her. Uh, It was all just a big elaborate hoax. And... The podcast and the book is about not only explaining how this all worked and what you've got to be wary of and how she pulled it off, but where on earth did she go? Where is she? And I could go into that in a great lot of detail, but as you said, just three weeks ago or so, she appears. One week after my book comes out, she appears on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, most wanted fugitives list. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know that was going to happen. I was absolutely, I could not believe it when someone told me that it was about to happen. And, um, so I don't think I knew what I was getting myself into, to be honest, when I started all this, because I just thought it was an <laughs> interesting little story. Yeah. So, with, so <laughs> it's amazing though. Yeah. yeah carry on. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no. So, so the whole thing just snowballs. I mean, the success of the podcast and the sort of the story and everyone started hearing about it and learning about it because it's a story about crypto scams, but it's also a story about a missing woman who's on the run with everyone's money and is still on the run. So the whole thing's completely nuts, really. But um, that's it. That, in a nutshell, that is the story of OneCoin. Has, has working on this podcast and, and tracking Dr. Ruja made you think differently about how you use your own data? 
Because I mean, you know, you've worked, you've mingled with some pretty interesting people. I'm assuming you don't want everyone to know where you are all the time. So has it, has it had an impact on how you deal with your own photographs, etc.? Yeah, it has to an extent. I definitely, because of the sorts of people that will be pissed off with this book, uh, and I know that they use the same sorts of techniques that I used on her, I uh, definitely don't, I don't post any photos of anywhere near I live, where I live at all. Mm-hmm. Unfollow a lot of my friends and family. So none of them, I don't follow any of them on social media. They don't follow me. Um, which is, I mean, there's a good, that's quite good generally, probably, to be honest with you. But the, <laughs> but the, but the it's really difficult when you're a writer because I, I have to go out and public. I have to go on Twitter and say, I am going to be speaking at this festival on this day. Please come and listen. Yeah. I can't get around that. I can't do my job without letting people know where I am. So every time I go out, you know, I'm always a little bit worried and paranoid. And especially when the book first came out and when the podcast first came out, I was extremely paranoid that I was being followed. And even if that's not true, it can have a really bad detrimental effect on your mindset just to believe that you are all the time. It's horrible. And one of the strangest things happened the day that the podcast first came out. I'm in bed and it's a, it's a literally three in the morning and the Someone starts banging on my door and screaming, get out of the house, get out of the house. And I'm like, oh my God, they found me already. I can't believe it. So I phoned 999. I'm going, what do you want? Shouting to this guy. And he's like, get out of the house. So I have 999. I have the police on the phone. And I'm saying, I'm actually telling them, like, I've released a podcast about a crypto scam. And I think they've found me. And these guys on the line are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it was someone at the wrong house. Oh, and you know like it's horrible so you get very i mean that wouldn't be nice anytime finally ian sits down with mary abrasanwa who is fintech growth lead at seckle they discuss why wealth tech is still underrepresented at fintech conferences and whether developments we're seeing in other areas of tech will eventually bleed into this industry finally ian asks mary the unenviable question of how we can achieve democratization of investment Today, I'm joined by a fantastic guest, Mary Abasanwa, fintech growth lead at Seckle. Now, Mary and I met recently at Fintech Week London, and I realized I needed to get her onto this podcast for several reasons. Another thing we discussed was the lack of wealth tech at fintech conferences. Now, I, I came over and spoke to you. I noticed you were working with Seckle, who obviously I've worked with many times before. But mm-hmm. other than yourselves, I didn't really recognize any faces from the world that I'm used to, the, the either wealth tech or financial services in the financial advice wealth management world. We, we don't seem to really be represented at wealth management conferences. Now, I spoke to the CEO of Fintech Week London, Rafter Kimper, uh, about this. He suggested it might be because wealth is a fairly private industry. Um, you know, when we spoke about it, you suggested that maybe wealth tech is seen more as a vitamin than a painkiller. I loved how you put that. Um, so maybe it doesn't seem so urgent and there might not be seen as such a need for it. But but why don't we see more wealth tech at fintech conferences? Because it's, it's a big market. Yeah. I think that when people think of fintech, um, at least in the past few years, they've thought of innovation coming from challenger banks and neobanks. So banking has probably been the first frontier in terms of innovation and thinking about what, um, how to meet um, consumer expectations and demands. Um, I think that insurance and probably wealth management are playing catch up. So I'm seeing increased prominence at some fintech conferences, but as you said, definitely not enough. Um, 
But I think that maybe as uh, we head further into a cost of living crisis, maybe, and people are thinking about how to make more for their money, or because um, neobanking is going through a phase where um, your kind of fintech app is probably not that much different from your um, incumbent financial institution app. They've kind of leveled the playing field. They've caught up. They might have started their own uh, fintech uh, startups in-house. Um, so I guess that is less of an exciting story. I think now um, the fintech venture capital hopefully is now um, going into other spaces like wealth tech, like insure tech. Um, and I'm excited to see what that will mean in terms of innovation as well. Yeah, definitely. And in these worlds are, you know, we, we give them separate titles, but I guess they are interlinked, aren't they? Exactly. One thing I heard, which I found very interesting at that conference was the idea that once people become more comfortable with embedded finance and say, you know, if you have a chip in your like bracelet or your watch that you use to pay for things and you use it for identification in other areas, once you're more familiar with that technology, then maybe you'll be more open to things like robo advice. Yeah. So do you think that some of that development that we're seeing in other areas of tech will, will bleed into wealth tech? Yeah, I think it has to. And I think um, even just with wealth management and increased consumer appetite for investing over the pandemic, I think that um, it would be remiss of um, other financial institutions to not think about how can we, um, yeah, serve this appetite from consumers for investing and think about how we can integrate it into our service as well. On democratization of investing, we're clearly seeing growth in that, aren't we? We've seen the rise of investment apps like Robinhood and Revolut and crowdfunding platforms too, like Crowdcube, Kickstarter, Cedars and Syndicate Room. Now we could look at cryptocurrency too, and while that's a you know, unique and somewhat strange example, it's clearly infused a, a large cohort of people to start doing due diligence of varying quality on investments of varying quality. Um, I think my question from that is, how do we actually achieve democratization of investing? I know that's a big question, but how do you think we do it? Wow, that is definitely the million dollar question. Um, I think it's a multi-pronged approach. I think, uh, firstly, probably not so many more tube ads for fintechs. Yeah. Um, I definitely see loads of that and I don't know how effective all of them are. I think probably consumers are probably a bit overwhelmed actually um, when thinking about the best fintech app to use. So actually what we've seen that has worked really well is thinking about the particular community that you want to support um, and thinking about that throughout the process as well. So what features does this community need? Do they want to invest in certain charities or have roundup kind of features? Um, and how do you portray that message in a way that's really, really clear to the audience? Um, and that is what will make your investing app or investing proposition stand out. Um, I'm excited for investing to move away from um, US stocks, um, US tech stocks and just make money quick to long-term investing principles and encouraging people to um, put money away for the kind of medium to long-term if they can afford to do so and more reasonable um, long-term wealth management strategies that I think um, everyone can learn some good things from. So um, yeah, I'm excited to see more innovation coming from more fintech founders from different backgrounds coming to the space, spotting maybe gaps um, that have been underserved and creating products and features for them in particular. That's it for this episode of The Wealth Tech Show. Thank you so much for listening both today and over the course of the year. Sadly, this does mark the last ever episode of The Wealth Tech Show. The podcast has provided a space to have some fascinating and very conversations about technology with some super interesting guests. So thank you for allowing us to do it. All 50 episodes of the podcast will still be available wherever you get your podcasts. So please do go back through the catalogue and listen. I'm George Morell, and this has been The Wealth Tech Show.